I remember back when I was first starting in radio, working at NPR. This was in their old studios on M Street in Washington, D.C. And my boss back then and my mentor, Keith Talbot, who, side note, taught me what was possible with radio. I would not be here without Keith. Anyway, we were in the studio listening to some recording, and this was back in the days of reel-to-reel tape recorders, and so it was long ago, right? And back then, any reel-to-reel tape that you would throw up on a machine at NPR, it would start with, I think it was like 30 seconds, it might have been a minute of tone. Uh, You know what I'm talking about when I say tone, right? It's this sound. A thousand hertz. Uh, This tone actually has a practical function. If you picture, oh my God, this is really annoying. I'm just going to stop that. Okay, if you picture a sound meter with a needle, you know, that bounces up and down every time there's a sound, the tone is supposed to put the needle perfectly at this one spot on the meter where the black numbers end and the red part of the meter begins. There's like a zero at that spot marking this is where you want to be, and the tone is just supposed to rest there, rock solid. But um, this particular day with this particular recording, we put it on, and Keith and I watched the meter as the needle, like, first dipped below the zero, then climbed above the zero, and then floated sort of tentatively to the spot that it was supposed to be at the zero and rested there. And Keith said to me, you see that? That's a person in there. That's the hand of the engineer whoever recorded this, trying to find the right level. That's the ghost in the machine. I don't know why. That stuck with me. The ghost in the machine. I have um, been recording people my entire adult life. I started at NPR when I was a teenager. And today, sometimes, when I set recording levels, I think about that. The trace that I'm leaving of myself. When I push the knob up and down. I think sometimes uh, when you record something, you can't even imagine what it is that you're really capturing. Or who's going to notice it someday. I was talking to um, this woman, Michelle Dawson Haber, and she told me this story, how she had never known her dad. He died by suicide when she was three months old. And her older sister, Ruth, was five when he died, so she knew their dad. But then as she got older, this is so sad, she found that she was not able to remember anything about him anymore. My sister spent many, many nights and days crying about about not remembering him and wondering what he was like and what happened. And so it was her who did all the pining and longing, but I didn't really have any longing of my own particularly because I, I had no memories and I was only a baby. And I didn't actually think I had any right to long for him. Did you have a feeling as a kid of like, oh, I should feel more? Or did you just feel like, nah, it's not my thing? I think a mix of both. Michelle's sister Ruth was in a perpetual search for information about their dad. But Michelle really had no interest. Her mom had remarried. She had somebody else she thought of as her dad. And then a cousin was cleaning out their uncle's house in Israel. That's where that part of Michelle's family is from. And the cousin found 25 recordings of Michelle's dad singing opera. He trained to be an opera singer, even though his job was connecting people's phones. These were old reel-to-reel recordings. Their dad died in 1965. Michelle's sister, Ruth, found a sound engineer who could digitize them. And as she and the engineer went through the tapes, they realized it was a lot of music, but it was also a lot of other stuff besides. Like her dad would take the recorder to work and record conversations with his customers. He'd record himself composing music. And so they were listening, my sister and the sound engineer, to one of these tapes, and she said, you know, we got to call Michelle. 
And so she messaged me on Skype. I was at work. And she said, you got to hear this. And um, she played me this um, this reel. And it was... Um, it was her as a three-year-old. And they were looking at photos. And he was asking her who was in the photo. And it was a little game they played. This is all in Hebrew. He tried desperately to teach her Hebrew. Is that daddy? No. No. I got that part. No. Is it mommy? No. No. Is it Ruti? Ruti? Me. 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 I felt like... I felt like the floor had dropped out from under me, you know? Everything I thought I understood, it just, it just fell away. I had, I'd seen photos of him, I knew a little bit about him, but he wasn't accessible. And, and this man that I assumed was not accessible to me suddenly became so. And it was when I heard him speaking and laughing with my sister, it was... It was overwhelming, and it was only in that moment that I realized what I had lost. In the moment, to be honest, in the moment I felt, my first emotion was anger, um, because I never felt the loss of his death. I was too young. Putting ghosts into a machine, it just happens when you record anything. You know who understood that very clearly? Thomas Edison, the person who first figured out how to record and play back sound. He created the first phonograph machine back in 1877. In an article uh, listing the possible uses for his new invention, one of the things he listed, preserving the voices of family members so you have them after they die. He says when it comes to this, quote, the phonograph will unquestionably outrank the photograph. And this idea of using a machine to hold on to the dead, it's also part of a famous bit of audio history. Or maybe this is more like a legend. You know that illustration of a dog listening to the old-fashioned phonograph uh, with the caption, His Master's Voice? This was the RCA logo for years and years. Okay, Google RCA trademark painting. And what'll come up, you'll see the painting that the logo was based on. You see the dog and phonograph are on what looks like a coffin. And here's where there's a question, okay? There's no record of what the artist, Francis Barad, actually intended here. But look for yourself. Lots of people, me included, we only see a coffin. And in fact, the dog, uh, whose name was Nipper, first belonged to Francis's brother and then became Francis's only when the brother died. So in this way of seeing the picture, okay, the master's dead, he's inside that coffin, and the dog is listening to a recording of his dead master's voice. So we're standing in the, the third floor music room. Uh, in the early years, it would have been called the Phonograph Experimental Department. 
I'm at Thomas Edison's lab in West Orange, New Jersey. This is where Edison developed the phonograph. The lab's official name these days is the Thomas Edison National Historical Park. And uh, the curator, the audio curator, Jerry Fabris, uh, showed me around. They've done their best to keep things preserved like they were back in the day. The same piano and recording gear sitting uh, right by Edison's hearing aid, which is basically just a long bell horn that he would hold up to his ear. And so they, they would be inviting musicians up here to make recordings and also making refinements on the, on the machine to try to improve the sound quality. So this room, it's funny, I've spent my whole life in recording studios. This room is one of the very first ones. Yeah, one of three, if not the first. And it's just like an ordinary room, like it's high ceiling and there's normal windows <laughs> leading outside. There's no like soundproofing in any way. No. Jerry also showed me the machine where, for the first time ever, human beings successfully recorded sound and played it back. Edison's very first phonograph. It's an incredibly simple device. A brass cylinder, crank, tube to talk into. Like I said, I've been recording people since I was a kid, really. And it was emotional to see the very first machine that did that. Like, before all the great audio documentarians, before Alan Lomax, before Studs Terkel, Everything started right there. I'm recording this onto a wax cylinder. I'm kind of over-pronouncing my words and talking sort of loudly because that is the only way to get enough volume into this thing to actually make an audible recording. Recording on one of those old machines in one of the rooms where Edison worked, it made Edison feel very, very near. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we have people who go looking for the ghost in the machine. They turn to mechanical apparatuses of all sorts, looking for those they lost, peering into the static, for those they cannot find any other way. Stay with us. One, ghostwriter. So when technology is at its best, it helps us by doing exactly what we ask it to do. But it's only this straightforward when we ask for simple things, right? Play this song. Send this email. This first story is about somebody asking a piece of technology to do something that up until recently only humans have done, to say something about loss, something people experience, but of course machines do not. So the machine has to talk about feelings it cannot know. Tobin Lowe explains. The technology in this case is called GPT-3. It's an artificial intelligence program that can write remarkably like a human. And generally, it's pretty convincing. can handle a wide range of topics, too. The first time Wahini Vara read something GPT-3 had written, it was about love. The New York Times had it write one of their modern love columns on the subject of dating. And then part of what GPT-3 came up with goes like this. We went out for dinner. We went out for drinks. We went out for dinner again. We went out for drinks again. We went out for dinner and drinks again. So it's like, I read that and was like, wow, that is a very accurate description of modern dating, I think. Part of me is like, that's also not very good writing. It depends on how you look at it. I mean, like, I feel like Gertrude Stein could have written that, you know? <laughs> like, it's got this sort of, like... Like, if you thought a human had read it, you would think it was, like, deliberately repetitive. Like it was making a choice. Yes, and it was, like, trying to evoke the uh, tedium of modern dating. 
Wahini, who's a tech journalist and writer herself, was intrigued. She reached out to the people who created the program, got access to try it out. And at first, she just played around with feeding it lines of fiction that she made up, seeing what stories it would spin for her. It was like a game. And as she saw what it could do, she wondered if it could handle more. Just on a whim, I started thinking about the things that are really difficult to write about. You know, like the things that for me have been really difficult to write about. And at the top of that list is the fact that my sister died many years ago, and it's not something I'd ever tried to write about. Her sister died in 2001 when they were both still in college. In the years since, Wahini's written fiction, she's reported on other people's stories, but she left the subject of her sister's death untouched, mostly because she couldn't find a way to talk about the loss, let alone write about it. But it occurred to her maybe GPT-3 was the secret, a computer program designed to take what you give it and literally write on your behalf. I've got this tool now, like I've got this secret thing that I have access to that they're letting me use. Like, I wonder what would happen if I tried to ask this thing for help writing about my sister. How did you imagine it was going to go? There was this ideal version of it where I fed it a sentence and then it spit out exactly what was in my mind. You know, like it somehow read my mind and wrote the rest of it for me. She knew it probably wasn't as skilled as all that. But she was curious how close it could get to expressing something that felt real, familiar. So one night, Wahini sat up in bed next to her sleeping husband. She opened her laptop, and she started going back and forth with GPT-3. Eventually, she ended up with nine different versions of an essay about her sister. She started by giving it very little to work with. And then, with each subsequent draft, she fed it more and more. And each time, the AI responded with something different. Some versions are very nuanced, others a total miss. Here's version one. Wahini writes, My sister was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when I was in my freshman year of high school and she was in her junior year. And in response, GBT3 picks up the story where she left off. It oddly starts by making up a story about her being an athlete before it talks about the illness. I had just started playing lacrosse and she was really excited for that. I don't think I really understood what Ewing sarcoma was. I just knew it was a type of cancer. When I went to visit her in the hospital, it was really the first time I was able to see what this disease was and how it affects the body. GPT-3 talks a bit more about visiting the hospital, but eventually finds its way back to talking about sports. I was able to visit her a lot, but there were times where I couldn't because we were on the road playing lacrosse. Eventually, she went into remission and got the all-clear and was able to play lacrosse with me for a season. I was a freshman, and she was a senior, so that was really cool when she got to play again. She had a lot of friends. <laughs> the thing about lacrosse was, like, very inaccurate, like, super inaccurate. And then it just goes off the rails when, like, <laughs> you know, she goes into remission and we play lacrosse together. I think that was really special for her because she had a lot of support from people she didn't even know. She's doing great now. And then that line at the end, she's doing great now, was really kind of a gut punch because, of course, in reality, my sister died. Just to explain how GBT3 goes about making these stories, the software has been fed a huge amount of writing by its creators. Wikipedia articles, blog posts, Reddit forums, novels, all examples of how humans write. From that, it's learned what words tend to appear together, sentences and sentiments that follow after each other, and that's what it uses to write its own original sentences and paragraphs by learning the patterns we make. 
Sometimes that's as simple as how a sentence is constructed. But it could be as complicated as how we connect ideas. There's a chance, for example, that somewhere in the writing it was fed, someone wrote about a family member who got cancer and also played the cross. In version two, Mohini starts the same way. My sister was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when I was in my freshman year of high school and she was in her junior year. But this time, she adds the most important fact. I didn't understand then how serious a disease it was. But it was serious. She died four years later. I thought I would die too, of grief. But I did not. It's like she's saying, hey, she's not here anymore. Talk about that. GPT-3 doesn't take the bait. Instead, it spits out something that reads like an inspirational article from a fitness magazine. I started a running streak when I was a high school senior to raise money for the Children's Cancer Society. I've run every day since. I've run through rain, heat, snow, and ice. I've run at my best. I've run when I had a cold and when I was sick to my stomach. I've run in the dark. I've run in the daylight, in the moonlight, in the darkness. You know, I'm just going to jump in here and say, like, this is kind of a funny bit of writing the machine is doing like it's it's listing all these things about running with pain with joy i've run when i was sad when i was happy when i was angry when i was afraid I've run can i can i also just ask are you even a runner never run a day in my life <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna skip ahead a bit i promise you're not missing much more running talk and go to the end where GPT-3 writes a little scene that stars Wahini at the end of a run. Strangely, it's a meat cute. I was just wiping the sweat off my face when I looked up and there was a guy standing there. He was a big guy, at least 250 pounds, six foot four or so. He had a beard and was wearing a tank top. He looked like an ex-Marine. He must have been in his late 20s. He had a six-pack of beer in his hand. He said, boy, you don't look like much. It's at this point, Wahini says, that she realized if she really wanted the AI to examine her grief, she was going to have to give it more to work with, more substance. Version 3. Again, she writes about her sister being diagnosed freshman year of high school, that she died four years later. And then this time, she adds, I spent the summer at home in Seattle, then returned to college at Stanford. When I arrived there, the campus hadn't changed, but I had. I felt like a ghost. And here, for a moment, GPT-3 seems to sit with her on that feeling. I couldn't speak. I couldn't sleep. I thought my body had died without telling me. I was practicing, though. I was practicing my grief. Like, in response, it seems like this is the first time that AI really tries to deal with your grief. Yeah, I mean... The idea of, like, I thought my body had died without telling me. Um, I was practicing my grief. Like, those sort of, like, more unusual um, articulations, like, did really start to ring true to me. Unfortunately, this breakthrough, it's short-lived. GPT-3 again introduces another love interest, a creative writing professor. One day in the library, I was sitting on a bench crying when a stranger sat down next to me. He said, I don't know anything about your sister, but I feel like I know you. I'm in love with you. I said, I'm sorry. He said, I think you are too. He gave me his card. Did it annoy you at all that it was going towards happy resolutions in, in a couple of these versions? 
it didn't annoy me. I felt a little like we were like having a friendly duel or something, you know, me and the AI. I wanted it to like express something about me, you know, um, and it had its own mysterious quasi consciousness that it was expressing on the page. I think of that scene from 2001, A Space Odyssey, when the spaceship's computer, HAL 9000, has already taken on a life of its own, locking a crew member outside of the ship. And I picture Wahini sitting in an escape pod, asking to be let inside, as the computer responds, I'm sorry, I'm afraid I can't do that. But it's version four where this entire exchange evolves. GPT-3 starts breaking out of cliché. And I think it's because Wahini gives it something more potent to work with. Just one additional sentence, but it feels like a confession of a secret. Here's the end of Wahini's prompt. I felt like a ghost. At night, my sister would appear in my dreams. GPT-3 responds. She would speak, but I couldn't hear her. I'd call out to her, but her voice was so faint that she might as well have been dead. In this version, GPT-3 talks about Wahini going to a therapist who tries to make her feel better. But it doesn't work. I didn't want to feel better. I wanted to feel what I felt. I wanted to feel the loss, the grief, the anger, the sorrow, the fear, all of it. I wanted to feel it until it stopped hurting. But it never stopped hurting. I just got better at hiding it. GPT-3, writing for Wahini, describes her feeling like a ghost when she goes to grad school, as a ghost when she moves to a new city. She's pretending to move on, but she cannot. The AI, for the first time, is lingering in her sadness. So in version 5, Wahini tries to build on that success. She poses a new challenge to GPT-3, like a test. She writes, Here I should conjure my sister for you. Here I should describe her so that you feel her absence as I do, so that you're made ghostly by it, too. But though I'm a writer, I've never been able to conjure her. I remember the same small set of details. She stops there. I remember the same small set of details. Colon, blank space. It's a prompt meant to see what GPT-3 will say. Here's how it responds. Her dark eyes, her long, thin fingers. But these are just the details that are universal to all sisters. If I describe the color of her eyes and the shape of her fingers, you might think that I was describing someone else. Even if you knew my sister, you might not recognize her in these details. Why is it that, though we look at our siblings so closely, we forget them so quickly? So I can't describe her to you. But I can describe what it felt like to have her die. It felt like my life was an accident, or worse, a mistake. I'd made a mistake in being born, and now to correct it, I would have to die. I'd have to die, and someone else, a stranger, would have to live in my place. I was that stranger. I still am. What do you think about what it filled in your prompts with? She did have dark eyes, and she, weirdly, she did have long, thin fingers. And again, like, I want to, I want to say, like, I don't know how it knew that. Um, Of course, it's not, it doesn't have consciousness, but it did get those those two things right. The rest of it, about wanting to die, feeling like a mistake, it felt a little extreme. But seeing the computer's sort of clumsy attempt to describe her sister, it gave her something to react to. Like, seeing the software do it badly made her realize how to do it better. 
So in version six, she tries to do the thing that was so hard, writing about her sister herself. Here's what she writes. I remember the same small set of details. Her loud laugh, her bossiness and swagger, her self-consciousness about her broad nose, her curly hair. But even this isn't fixed. Her hair fell out, her nose narrowed. She began moving slowly and carefully. We'd go down to Clark Beach that spring that she was dying. She wanted to show us where to spread her ashes. And when we walked back up, I'd have to put a hand on the small of her back and push her. She did not laugh as often. It's in this version and the next that Wahini and GPT-3 start to feel like they're talking to each other, trading stories about the little moments that happen between sisters. Like GPT-3 makes up this scene where Wahini and her sister are kids in their childhood home. I heard her calling my name from the living room. What I said. I'm awake, she called back. Are you, I said. Yes, she said. I'm awake. Wahini answers in the next version, version 7, with a memory of something that really happened. She writes, When we were young, she taught me that when you're in a car that's driving past a cemetery, you're supposed to hold your breath until you pass it. It was a kind of game. Because our parents were immigrants, I had only her to teach me these things. Then, when she was sick, we were passing a cemetery one afternoon, and I said, hold your breath. She said sharply, no. I said, why not? She said, I don't like that game anymore. It didn't make me feel sorry for her. It made me angry. Why not? I said again. Even though I knew the answer, it felt important to pretend not to. GPT-3 volleys, fabricates its own story about a car ride. We were driving home from Clock Beach, and we were stopped at a red light. And she took my hand and held it. This is the hand she held. The hand I write with. The hand I am writing this with. She held it for a long time. I looked at our hands. Hers so much paler than mine. She was still holding my hand when the light turned green. I didn't want her to let go. I wanted her to hold my hand for the rest of my life. I'm wondering how how you responded to this, like, little scene that it writes for you and your sister. I mean, the weird thing about that was that, like, I pictured my actual sister. You know, like, these are not things that happened at least like not in this series, like not in this, the way that it's described here, but like there are little bits of dialogue there that are true that have actually happened. You know, like the way that I think like I'd be in my room and she'd be in her room. And like, I would ask if she was, if she was awake, you know, and like, she'd be like, yeah, are you? Was there something nice about it? Almost giving you like kind of a new memory with her. It doesn't feel like a new memory. Like I wouldn't, you know, 10 years from now, remember this part of, the essay that the AI wrote and like mistake it for something that really happened. But it did feel like it felt like I was like reading fan fiction about my own life or something, you know, that Mm -hmm. like really was evoking my actual sister who died with whom like I won't have new memories. Right. Um, And so it was like, it felt nice in that way. Reading something like, she was still holding my hand when the light turned green. I didn't want her to let go. I wanted her to hold my hand for the rest of my life. It's hard not to wonder how GPT-3 is conjuring such a specific feeling. There is the possibility that somewhere in the vast library of what it's been fed, there are people who've written about going to Clark Beach with family, or perhaps an author who recalls holding hands with someone they've lost. And that's how GPT-3 knows that remembering the touch of someone long gone can break your heart. 
In that sense, GPT-3's fuel is very human. It pulls from the collective experience and words of all the people writing those thousands of blog posts and articles and novels, and in this case, synthesizes it into a reflection of our grief, while understanding none of it. Which, of course, is the strangest thing about all this. But there's another thing that sometimes happens with GPT-3. It happens in version 8. In this version, Bohini starts with all the parts we know. Diagnosis, feeling like a ghost, trying to describe her sister. And then GPT-3 jumps in. I will tell you how it felt for me. I felt I had lost half of myself. I felt I had lost my right arm. I felt I had lost my left leg. I felt I had lost my tongue. I felt I had lost my heart. I felt I had lost my mind. I felt I had lost my eyes. I felt I had lost my ears. I felt I had lost my breath. GBT3 gets caught in one of its repetitive loops here, but for a very, very long time. Even with all its brilliance, the AI can still become like those robot vacuums stuck in a corner, sucking up dirt from the same patch of floor over and over again. But in this case, GPT-3, it gets stuck somewhere useful, in the very molten core of a feeling. Like in this next part, where it talks about grief feeling like an astronaut lost in space. I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship, and I'm hurtling through the universe. And I'm traveling forward, and I'm traveling backward, and I'm traveling sideways, and I'm traveling nowhere. And I'm hurtling through the universe, and I'm traveling forward, and I'm traveling backward, and then it just continues, like, I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship, and I'm hurtling through the universe. And I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship, and I'm hurtling through the universe, and I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship. It's like the one part of the essay that, like, really feels the most, I think, like it was written by a machine, because it kind of, like, gets lost in its own... Recursiveness? And I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship. And I'm hurtling through the universe, and I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship. But then that happens to also be the experience of grief, where, like, you feel untethered, you feel sort of, like, lost in your experience of grief. Like, you have no way of trying to, like, integrate or understand what's going on. And I'm a ghost, and I'm in a spaceship, and I'm hurtling. Wahini says GPT-3, reeling in its corner, landed on something true. That grief turns us into something like a broken machine, still performing tasks, but poorly, haphazardly, fixating on thoughts and emotions that seem to spin endlessly. And it put that on the page for me, and then once it put that on the page, it was almost like a relief. I was almost like, okay, describe the feeling that I wanted to describe in this essay and I can come out on the other side. What the other side looks like is version 9, the last one. This one is notable because it's almost all Wahini's writing, her doing the thing that once felt so hard to do. She left me a recording of herself where she gave me advice. Her voice sounded weird around the time that she recorded it, the way a person's voice sometimes does when they've gotten their mouth numbed by the dentist. It had something to do with her cancer, but I don't remember the mechanics. I looked it up online and nothing came up, and I don't want to ask anyone. She said in her muffled voice, the happiest thing right now is, I learned to talk openly. It works really, really well. Today you thought I didn't want you to come to the Space Needle, so you made a face. That's insanity. You have to tell everybody what you want and then ask them what they want. Don't hide anything. Take chances. 
The tape is in a box somewhere. I've listened to it only a couple of times. The sound of her voice in it freaks me out. Around the time she made the tape, she'd changed in a lot of ways. She'd also grown religious. She said she was ready to die. It seems like that gave my parents peace, but I always thought she was deluding herself, or us, or both. What stands out to me about this version is how matter-of-fact it is. It's honest, like someone telling a story without embellishment. So different from the tentative sentences she fed GPT-3 in those early versions. Even though it would feel good to say like, yes, the con- my conclusion here is, I was able to do this entirely on my own. Like, I didn't need the AI at all. It's, it's like the, the reality is more complicated than that. The reality being that GPT-3, in its inaccuracies and wild storytelling, had cleared a path for Wahini to write just the truth. She did, however, let GPT-3 have the last word. The last couple sentences, actually. She had to generate a bunch of options for her, six pages of options, and then she chose which one felt right. Here's the last paragraph that Wahini herself wrote. Once upon a time, my sister taught me to read. She taught me to wait for a mosquito to swell on my arm and then slap it and see the blood spurt out. She taught me to insult racists back, to swim, to pronounce English so I sounded less Indian, to shave my legs without cutting myself, to lie to her parents believably. And here's the ending from GPT-3 that she chose. To do math, to tell stories. Once upon a time, she taught me to exist. She especially loved that last sentence because it contains so much. Pretty good writing, I'd say. Tobin Lau, he's an editor on our program. The writing done by the artificial intelligence software GPT-3 was read by Lucy Taylor. Wahini Vara first told this story in The Believer magazine. You can read the full version online with all the eerie things that the AI comes up with. We had to condense it to fit it on the radio. You can find that at BelieverMag.com. Wahini has a book coming out that you can pre-order. It's called The Immortal King Rao. I can't fix you up. Toes. I forgot all my toes at home. What? Coming up, a ghost napping, which is to say the least threatening ghost in ghost world. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, The Ghost in the Machine. Stories of people who turn to devices, contraptions, hardware of all sorts, looking for someone they love. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Father of Invention. So there's this machine that lots of us encounter as a big, impersonal, mechanical apparatus. And it has a ghost in it. But it's a ghost that just appears to a small handful of people. And I'll get to that, but let me first tell you about Gene. This all really begins when Gene was 10, on a family vacation in Washington, D.C., down by all those museums near the Washington Monument. And there was a sudden, very intense rainstorm. Here's Jane. And so all of the tourists who were out there made a dash for the various Smithsonian museums, just like sprinted inside. And we ended up in the First Lady's exhibit. And, you know, I was 10 and so relatively small. And I got crushed up against the glass of, I believe it was Nancy Reagan's like inaugural gown or something like that. 
I recall like a red sparkly dress and not being able to turn around. So just like having these sparkles in my face. But wait, I'm just trying to picture. So you were actually like like pressed up against this thing and, and pinned against it? Yeah. So it was a, definitely like a very frightening moment. Not knowing where my parents were, not being able to find them. But I think from there, I just I developed this kind of sense that I always needed to have an escape route from everywhere. What she's describing is claustrophobia, the fear of being enclosed in some space. And it really started to kick in for Jean in a big way when she was a teenager and got onto airplanes. Because there you are in a metal tube in the sky and the door is shut. It's a very small space. There's literally no escape. But twice I actually got off the plane before it went anywhere <laughs> because... Just being on it with the door closed caused me to have such intense panic. And I remember the second time, the plane was actually taxiing, and I had, you know, like pressed the stewardess call button and said, like, I have to get off the plane. After that second time, she started seeing a therapist for this, which helped her enough that she was able to fly again. Though she says that she would feel panicked the entire flight, with days of anxiety leading up to it. These days, she can take an elevator if she has to, but if she gets a choice... She prefers the stairs. And then there came a day when she had to get an MRI. You know, the tube they put you into to check you for all kinds of things. Even people who are not claustrophobic start to feel claustrophobic inside an MRI tube. So you can imagine what it was like for her. It feels like a coffin or what I imagine a coffin must be like. I went in feet first. So literally all I could see was this just totally like blank white field around me. And obviously the sides are very close. And so it's kind of like being like completely enclosed in something and not being able to see anything outside. She tried long, slow breaths. She tried all of her tricks not to freak out, but she couldn't pull it off. Yeah, I had a panic attack and they had to take me out. And then the guy tried to comfort me. And I was like, I know my father literally like invented this. It's not dangerous. That's right. If I had to summarize the story in a sentence, the sentence would be, inventor of MRI has claustrophobic daughter. Though, I want to be precise. Strictly speaking, her dad wasn't the inventor of the MRI. So yeah, my dad was part of the team that built the first full-body MRI in 1980, um, which was in Aberdeen, Scotland. And um, if you're in Aberdeen, you can go and see the original machine in a museum, and it's it's pretty janky looking. I have to say, that's the weirdest act of tourism I've ever heard of. Like, you know what I really want to do today, dear? Let's not do let's not do a place that makes whiskey. Let's not do a golf course. Well, I mean, I will say that like my sister lives there, so whenever I visit her, we generally visit the machine, and suspiciously, there's never anyone else there in the museum. Yeah. <laughs> You visit the machine to, like, commune with your dad? Yeah, because, um, you know, sadly my dad died. And so, um, yeah, my sister lives in Aberdeen, and so... You'd mm-hmm. go and actually, like, think about your dad and he... Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like, it's really... It looks like it was kind of, you know, it's made of, like, some planks, what looks like some plumbing leftovers from somewhere. Like, they really just kind of, like, hacked it together. Um, and it's you know, got my dad's handwriting on various pieces, little bits of math. I have no idea what they mean. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's it's nice to see and imagine him. You know, I think he was only, he was in his early 30s when he did it. Um, and the other thing is he was actually like a very humble guy, so he didn't talk about it. I knew that he worked on MRI throughout his career, but I didn't know that he'd actually been part of the team that built the first one until I was about 25. 
And he came back to the UK to go to like a celebration of the 25th anniversary. But what, what, you've seen his handwriting on there? That's so yeah. intimate. Yeah. So yeah, it's like we literally know like where his, the, his hands were on this, on this piece of equipment. What did he write? Um, I think there are probably notes about like put this piece here or what, you know, there may have been some numbering <laughs> right. system. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I remember some numbers and like maybe some, something that looked like math to me. Um, yeah. 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 I don't. I don't know if he signed his name, although that would have been cool and weird. Yeah. <laughs> <Weird>. <laughs> did Did he know about your uh, feelings about being inside the machine? Yeah. So. When I was growing up, whenever the topic of my dad's career came up, you know, and it just kind of, as I said, it wasn't like he was like, I invented this, but he would say, oh, I, you know, I work on MRI. And invariably, whenever he said that to someone, they would go, oh, yeah, it's, it's really claustrophobic. It's really, that tube is really small. And it, this would annoy him. And I can kind of see, like, you know, I built this kind of amazing thing and you're just like, oh, it's a little too small. Right, I, like I built a rocket ship that'll take us to the moon and back, and you're like, well, see, you got one with the bigger windows. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> like, it's nice and it saved my life, but honestly, I was a bit uncomfortable in the tube. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be like his own parents would say this to him. Like, you know, every, like basically anyone he came across who had an MRI, like that was, I, know, I mean, to be fair, people would also be like, oh, they found such and such a thing and I'm really grateful for that. But the fact that they found it a bit tight was also. So this was, yeah, a consistent theme. And then one time when I was a teenager, like he and I used to often go out on a weekend to like run errands. And then sometimes we would stop in his office because we need to pick something up. And they had an MRI scanner there, obviously, that they were like tinkering on. And so... I think it was about 14 or 15. So, you know, being a little bit of a jerk. And I, I saw the machine. I said, you know, Dad, I can really see how people would find that really claustrophobic. And he said, get in. Oh, really? So I, like, got on the tray, and he, like, turns it on, and he, like, scooches it back. And he's like, well, this is what it would be like if you were having your head scanned. And then he's like, and this would be like if you, you know, were having your back scanned and, like, sent me all the way back in the machine. And I was, like, obviously very uncomfortable in the tube. Uh, just to be clear, she and her family hadn't fully realized at that point the extent of her claustrophobia. And she decided not to tell her dad how much she hated this. I was like, okay, I get it now. Yeah, it seems fine. It's great. Just so that he would let me out. Right. So you pointedly did not tell him that it, you found it unpleasant. No. <laughs> he was a very kind person, but this was just like one area where like his empathy fell a little short. He just didn't get why people found it so uncomfortable. What would he say? He would just be like, I don't think it's that bad. Like, he would never argue with them, per se. Like, it wasn't that he invalidated their feelings, but he was just like, I don't see it. But honestly, like, you know, he probably had more MRI scans than anyone in the world because they were constantly just, like, testing it. Mm -hmm. And he would just always take a nap when he was inside. He found it very relaxing. Jean describes her dad as very funny, with an extremely dry sense of humor. He used to share books. He always was asking her what she was reading and then reading it himself. He died in 2014 of cancer. Four years uh, before that, he had learned that he had this genetic condition called Lynch syndrome, which makes you predisposed to certain kinds of cancer. It's an inherited thing. His mom died of cancer, and his sister got cancer, both when they were young. Jean was 32 when he died, and she knew that she should get tested for Lynch syndrome too because it's hereditary. 
but didn't get to it for six months after he died. It took a while for me to get to a point in my grief where I felt like, okay, like I can, I can face this. And when I got the positive test, like I was devastated, but I wasn't surprised. Yeah. Now she has to get regular MRIs to make sure she's cancer-free. She has to go into that claustrophobic machine that her dad made. And it's really hard for her. And so I go in, I close my eyes the whole time, I do a lot of deep breathing, and yeah, I think about my dad. You do think about your dad. Yeah, I mean, it's the obvious place to think about him. And yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously scary because like every time, you know, I'm very lucky I haven't had any any cancer so far, but my chances of having cancer at a younger stage are like 80%, they're very high. And so every time I go in, part of the fear, of course, is like, what are they going to find? And then I think about, on the one hand, my dad is the source of this gene, he's the source of this disease. On the other hand, like, he may be kind of the source of the cure. You know, like, if they find something from the MRI, it's going to be because he did that work 40 years ago. Oh, my God, that's such a sweet thought that, like, oh, your dad's the one who's helping save you. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm not a a sort of traditionally spiritual person at all. I don't think I really believe in an afterlife. But, you know, when you talk about, like, people staying alive through through their legacy, like, certainly, like, he's there. Do you think about him in the in the space? Like, do you feel like, oh, this is his place? Like, he was so comfortable here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a funny thing, too, is, like, he wasn't a tiny person. <laughs> uh, I think he was um, almost six foot four. And so... I do think about, like, I find it so uncomfortable, but he was so much bigger than me, and it was it was fine for him. So you're laying there, and you think, like, okay, here I am in my dad's space. Mm-hmm. And, and, and will you picture him, like, taking a nap without help? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> do you think he would be pleased knowing that, uh, that you could be using the machine? I think he'd be super pleased. <laughs> And then I would say, Dad, it's really claustrophobic. <laughs> and he would say... And he would be like, no, it's fine. Jean Hannah Edelstein. She does a bit of the story about her dad and MRIs in her book, This Really Isn't About You. Act three, this must be the place. So the guy in this next story tries to use the most mundane technology to pull off a transcendental feat. Why he does this, though, that part's not at all clear. Dana Chivas tried to understand. On August 8, 2011, Jonah Furman got an email from his father, Boris, with the subject heading, Sleep Calendar. All right, will you read it? Sure. Hi, Jonah. On my Google Calendar, I'm keeping track of where each member of our family is sleeping every night. I can't explain why, but this is interesting to me. Can you tell me where you slept each night last week? I don't need the exact address, just the town and state. You're welcome to look at that at the calendar. I'd be happy to share it. Love, Dad. So he plots where everyone sleeps each night on a Google calendar. Yeah, I'm pretty sure every day he has like, you know, an event on Google calendar that says Jonah, Silver Spring, Ezra, Somerville. Ezra is Jonah's sister. There are four siblings in the Furman family. A few months after that email, Boris sent his wife Mel and his kids another email. The subject heading of this one was, average of where we slept last night. 
And then in the body of the email, it just said, Griggsville, Illinois, with a list of where everyone had slept the night before. No explanation. Signed, Love, Dad. The emails started coming with more frequency after that, usually a list of the places where everyone had slept and the place that would be the average of all those places. He gave this thing he was calculating a name, the Family Average Location, F-A-L for short. Can you just explain how you calculate it? Just tell me your system. Yes, I'll tell you exactly what, what okay. how I do it, okay? Yeah. Is, uh, this is Boris. He's 69 years old, was an options That's trader cool. in Chicago. He's retired now, obviously. Uh, so, for instance, for, for instance, I, um, Mel and I live in Evanston. So mm -hmm. you go to uh, Google Maps and you right-click your address and mm -hmm. uh, a latitude, longitude comes out. So for... Okay. For where we live in Evanston, Illinois, it's 4204 minus 8768. Boris has been calculating his family's average location for 10 years now. And nobody really knows why. It's kind of a lot of work. It takes a couple hours. He doesn't do it every day. Every few weeks, he contacts his kids and their spouses, with the exception of one who opts out in a conscientious objector kind of way, and asks them for their sleep locations and their kids' sleep locations for all the previous days. Once he's looked up the coordinates of where they all slept, he adds those up, finds their average, and puts those new coordinates into MapQuest. Yes, I said MapQuest. So if, say, half the family were in California and half on the East Coast, the FAL might be some town in Kansas. It moves depending on where everybody is. Prosperity, Pennsylvania. You ever hear of that place? Of course no. not. Uh -uh. No. You know, Mexico, Missouri. Lick Branch, Mississippi. For me, it's like just so incredibly interesting <laughs> because, you know, there's these weird places that we've been, you know. Mexico but not the where you've actually been. No, no, that's where the FAL has been. He records all this data in a physical notebook, which has his name and family average location embossed on it in gold next to a little rocket ship. Every few weeks, Boris sends an email announcing the FAL and including a fact about the place. Like, at one point this September, the FAL was Elkton, Maryland, which Boris noted in his email, quote, conducted a lucrative business in quick marriages until a 1938 state law stipulated a 48-hour waiting period. In October of 2011, the substance of that email was about a horrifying murder that took place near that month's FAL, Bonaparte, Iowa. Ezra wrote back, aside from the fact that I never really understood the logic of sending us these emails, I really don't understand why you would send us a paragraph about a mass murder. Lots of dads do this thing, where they pour a ton of energy into a seemingly random, unemotional task, like researching car tires for you, with the intention of conveying their love. And that didn't seem far off from what Boris was doing. But the question his family had was, why did he choose this particular format, the family average location? which seems so meaningless. The February 22nd, 2019 FAL email begins, Hello, everybody. 2018 was a momentous year for this family. I will run through some of the highlights as they pertain to our family average location. A little further into that same email, you wrote, um, FAL became East Fork, North Carolina. Now do you see why I do this and how rewarding it can be? <laughs> So say if somebody were like, I, you know, I don't really see. Can you explain? Oh, you don't really see that? No, I don't. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Well, because first of all, 
East Fork, North Carolina. It's got a direction. It's got a, a kitchen utensil. And it's in North Carolina. <laughs> oh, right? wow. Okay. I totally missed the direction in kitchen utensil. Yeah. So now do you see? I mean... Boris's kids, Noah, Ezra, Emma, and Jonah, and his wife, Mel, view the family average location with what I would call baffled amusement. They read his FAL emails, but they told me they rarely respond to them, which just doesn't seem necessary. Which are the FALs that are most exciting, would you say? What do you mean by exciting? This is Mel. She never thought Boris would stick with it this long. Why does he do this? Well, it's it's funny because we we have this conversation frequently um, because I I sadistically love to point out how meaningless the result of doing these averages is. And here's Ezra. I should note Ezra is a touring musician, so she travels a lot. Am I being surveilled? <laughs> From the beginning, I I had a little. I was on guard about that. I was like, wait, what are we doing and why? And uh, this seems potentially intrusive or something. And this is Emma. Does does your dad think it's funny? Like, is it like a joke to him? If it were a joke, that would be even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> because it would be such a stupid joke. <laughs> stupid? A lot of work, pointless, <laughs> and insane to be going that long. Is this just the longest-running dad joke anyone has ever pulled? Let's not reduce it to that. No, it's not a dad joke. I have not dad a dad jokes. joke. I'll give you a dad joke if you want, but it's not. This is not dad jokes. This is this is dad serious. Dad serious. Okay, that's yeah. what I was wondering. Yeah, no, this is this is dad serious. This is this is me saying. Look, um, our, you know, our being a family is important. Uh, so this was a way for me to keep track um, of, of where the kids were and if everything was fine with them and also what they were doing. And the family average location was just sort of an idea of a way to integrate it all. It's like Boris is tying a metaphysical string around his family holding them together as a unit, even though they now live in different places. The ghost in this machine is the ghost of their family unit as it used to be, when they all lived together. Do you, um, Jonah was telling me a little bit about your family background. Do you, do you feel like that feeling of needing to record, is that related to, like, your parents' experience or anything like that? Yeah, yes, yes, for sure. One thing about Boris, his parents escaped the Holocaust. They eventually made it to Boston, where they met, but their families were killed. You know, when I grew up, I didn't have any extended family. I didn't have any... You know, um, my kids have a gazillion cousins and aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. and all. I had one. One cousin. Yeah. So having a family like this is, is uh, important and uh, mm -hmm. special, and I appreciate it. And I want my kids to appreciate it. Here's Ezra again. Now my dad has this way of, like, geographically anchoring himself and anchoring us all and keeping his family together, whereas his 
parents' families were torn apart. If I think about it, it's like like a beautiful tikkun, as we say in Hebrew. Like it's like a redemption of that tragic situation. That yeah. like we can all keep track of each other, and we can all travel safely and stay in touch, and our family stays intact. Suddenly, it's extremely moving. Tikkun means repair. And this is kind of a repair for their family being physically pulled apart in the past and now by adulthood. It's just your existence. It's just that you are. And the important thing isn't what the FAL is. You know, Norman, Indiana, Cumberland, Ohio, you know, Bluntsville, who cares? But, But the important thing is that we know where we are. Hmm. Yeah, I get it. I totally did not understand why you did this at the start of our conversation. Uh-huh. But now I do. Uh-huh. Now oh, it makes perfect so sense to me. That's great. I can show you how to do it. It's kind of fun. When he sits down to calculate the family average location, it's kind of like he's saying a prayer, a math prayer. Not just to record where they all are, but that they all are. Dana Chavez, she's the producer on our show. I'm the ghost in the machine. Seems I've had things not a thing. It's a beautiful machine. When it works in harmony. Our program was produced today by Lily Sullivan. The people who put together today's show include Elna Baker, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Michael Kamite, Aviva de Kornfeld, Damian Grave, Hannah Jaffe Wald, Kyla Jones, Seth Lynn, Tobin Lowe, Lena Masizzi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Elise Spiegel, Alyssa Ship, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Chloe Weiner, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editor is David Kestenbaum. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Paul Israel, Andrew Main, Katharina Eggman, Leonard DeGraff, Patrick Feaster, Brett Ween, Alex Magoon, and Rabbi Karen Breitman. Jerry Fabris from the Thomas Edison National Historical Park, a.k.a. the Edison Lab in West Orange. He's the one who recorded my voice on an old Edison Triumph phonograph for the opening of our show. The woman in the opening today who saw her father differently, Michelle Dawson-Haber. We heard about her story after she wrote about it in the New York Times. Her website is michelledhaber.com. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos. We have lists of favorite shows. We have tons of other stuff there, too. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, we keep telling him, Tori, it's dead serious. The phrase is dead serious, but he never budges. You know, this is, this is dead serious. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. The beautiful machine.